good day and welcome to the EPIC broadcast, the official podcast of the Parental Rights Foundation. EPIC, E-P-P-C, stands for Empowering Parents, Protecting Children, because that's what we're all about. Well, greetings, ladies and gentlemen, from sea to shining sea. My name is Will Estrada. I'm the president of the Parental Rights Foundation, and I'm your host today for the EPIC broadcast. We're so glad that you joined us today on our podcast to discuss parental rights. My guest today is Dr. Roger Smith. Dr. Roger Smith has devoted his life to helping families flourish. As a speaker and writer, he draws both from his personal experience raising four children with his wife, Jan, and from his professional experience as a family physician, offering practical advice with a warm, common-sense style. Board certified in both internal medicine and pediatrics, Dr. Smith invests in the lives of others as a parent, a teacher, and a quote-unquote country doctor who still makes house calls. I'm glad to have uh, Roger Smith on our podcast today because he recently also wrote a book titled Parenting with Influence, Shifting Your Parenting Style as You and Your Child Grow. I've known Roger and his wife, Jan, for many years, and actually I was locked in a bank vault with him and his wife and some other friends. Don't worry too much. It was actually an escape room uh, a few uh, a few months ago. So Roger, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It's always a pleasure to... Uh... Hang out with you, Will, and uh, to be sharpened by by you. So uh, it, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. I, we've got a lot to cover. I want to talk about homeschooling, parental rights, your your uh, perspectives as a doctor. Uh, you and your wife travel around the country speaking at marriage seminars as well. And of course, you've got this book, Parenting with Influence, that I would encourage our listeners to, uh, to go and to read. But let's start off with uh, your professional career as a doctor. What is something that you as a doctor wish the parents knew about the medical care of their kids? Well, uh, wow, that's, that's wide open, Will. Uh, they're they're, they're um, primarily um, the medical profession's job is to come alongside the parent. Uh, the parents are making the decisions. We are the coach. We're the ones giving the information and, and so that you as the parent can make the best decisions regarding, you know, the care of your children, but also your own personal care and decisions and, and strategic um, decision-making as far as how you want to live. And uh, so, um, you know, the medical profession, um, we call it the practice of medicine and people ask about that a lot. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there, it's, it's kind of a moving target as to what are the standards, what's the newest information. And uh, so we don't have a, a lock on truth, but we help people to find how they want to live and what's important to them. And uh, so, you know, that's, that's the thing is not be, uh, uh, think that uh, the medical profession is all knowing, but we are just simply a teammate on, on your journey in life. So is there a Roger Smith bobblehead, sort of like a Dr. Fauci bobblehead that you have yet, or, or you oh, wouldn't go that far? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, I don't even know how to answer that, Will. <laughs> Maybe let's not then. So, Roger, that kind of segues into my next question. 
Talking about doctors and parental rights, today we hear more and more stories about doctors and, and medical professions that are asking parents to leave the rooms when their kids are 10, 11, 12, certainly when they're in their teenage years. There seems to be a lot of tension between parents and the medical community. What do you say? You know, I, I personally am of the uh, opinion that those children belong to the parents and not to uh, themselves or to the state or to anyone else. And that uh, we, we, treat, we should be treating families and not individuals. Uh, and so uh, there are times that um, children may speak more freely about issues or concerns whenever the parent is not present, but that's not the normal situation. Um, the normal situation should be that the parent is the most trusted person in the room, and they're more likely to tell the parent something than the, than the uh, healthcare provider. So um, I, I have some misgivings about the whole practice of asking parents to, to leave the room. Um, and so um, there are situations, but they should be largely the exception rather than the rule. And uh, that's not generally how it is taught in the medical community. Um, but I do think that uh, we should be treating the whole family um, and not setting one member against the other. And there, there are times that we do that unintentionally is that uh, we assume that the, the parent is uh, an obstacle uh, and we shouldn't. Now, Granted, there are times whenever the parent is the problem, they are abusive, they are hostile. Um, and uh, so it, it, there are situations, that's why I say I can't make a, a, a you know, black and white rule here, but I say in general, the family should be treated together. Uh, and uh, yet there are situations where we would have to uh, separate the, the witnesses, so to speak, to get the, get the whole story, so. Roger, at Parental Rights Foundation, we unfortunately spend a lot of our time suing social workers when they have falsely accused parents or are, are investigating a family for no reason. So protecting innocent families from the long arm of the government in child welfare investigations. Of course, certainly if there is abuse or neglect going on, then there is a, a purpose for CPS. But oftentimes right. we see um, caseworkers who just don't understand parental rights and an issue where there's no harm to children and they're coming in. Oftentimes, however, these cases spring out of a report made from a doctor or a nurse. And oftentimes I've seen this happen a lot when there's just a disagreement between a medical intervention between a parent and a doctor. So when a parent disagrees or if a parent disagrees with a doctor's recommendation, how should they approach that so that there isn't a report made to a child welfare investigator? You know, a lot of it is, is rooted in uh, communication. Um, I will say that, first of all, there are many, in, not just in the medical community, uh, but the whole uh, child protection social services division has the default position that someone is to blame the that they assume that there is a uh, you know a guilty party uh, that they're looking for they're on a headhunt so to speak 
And that is kind of their default position because they are an investigative agency. Um, and so um, whether that's good or bad, that is the default position. Uh, now, sometimes that creeps into the medical community and I don't like that. I, I personally think that that's an unhealthy approach to trying to help solve medical issues. Um, and so, but whenever the parent finds themselves in disagreement with the uh, healthcare provider, whether it's a nurse practitioner, a physician, um, uh, or even a mental health person, you know, in, in, there are a lot of different layers to the mental health, I mean, to the uh, medical community. There has to be uh, a freedom of communication saying, this is what I'm thinking. This is why I believe this way. You know, there, the, the more stilted that interaction is, the more suspicion rises. And so um, there is a degree of openness that we need to have with one another. And I, I fault the medical community as much as I would, you know, uh, as I would say to the parents, sometimes you made yourself appear suspicious. I would say that the medical community should be allaying those fears to where it's, it's okay for people to openly communicate and say, well, I don't want to do that because I think this or I'm just not, you know, I don't want to go along with that, whether it's surgery treatment or whether it's, you know, treatment of uh, life threatening diseases or whether it's immunizations or a whole host of things, you know, er every decision has a layer of uh, values that's associated with it. And sometimes our values come into clash. And um, I think that parents' values supersede the health community's values. I wonder if we have listeners right now who are saying, I need to find Dr. Smith to be my, my physician who will do house calls. So uh, you're in Louisiana, right? If you're, if right. you're in Virginia or North Carolina or California, yeah. you, you're not going to make a house call that far away, right? Yeah, and and uh, I, I included that house call thing in my bio just because it does happen occasionally, but there's only so many things that we can do in the home. Uh, so we usually don't do house calls. That's okay. not our <laughs> So, uh, uh, but I do um, seek, if I could put it in a, a different term, I do seek to make home calls and that oftentimes the families are coming into my office and that's representative of their home. And I want to see the whole thing. And I, you know, and sometimes uh, decisions aren't black and white. They are in context. And so we have to get that whole context. And that includes, you know, understanding how the family is put together. And uh, I wish things were more black and white, but I'll, there's a lot of gray in this world. Roger, I want to, if you're willing, to touch the third rail of uh, of doctors and and parents, and that is uh, vaccinations, pediatric vaccinations. As you know, some parents delay vaccines, some parents don't vaccinate, many parents do the full CDC schedule. So, what are your thoughts on pediatric vaccines? Broad question. Yeah. I, there, as I mentioned to you before we started this, uh, there's a, this is almost a, 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 a toxic conversation because no matter how you answer this, someone's going to disagree and that's okay. I'm fine with people disagreeing with me, but I, I do want to put the vaccinations in context first. Um, it, they're, um, 
the life expectancy uh, in in uh, first world countries like the United States um, has drastically increased, largely because we have la uh, very few childhood deaths. And a lot of the things we immunize for, not all of them, but a lot of them were uh, fatal illnesses in days gone by, even, you know, classic measles. There are several different types of measles, but there's the one that we primarily Im immunize against. It was a fatal illness uh, back, you know, 150 years ago. Uh, so just realizing that we don't see children dying of infection today, uh, that is because uh, immunizations has played a significant role, not the entire role, but a significant role in reducing childhood death. So there is a place for vaccinations. And, you know, with um, the COVID uh, epidemic, you know, there was a lot of talk of herd immunity. And that concept has been around for a long time. And in fact, that's why uh, when some children are not immunized, they seem to do just as well as everyone else, because by and large, the herd is immunized against those childhood diseases that have been fatal, diphtheria, tetanus, uh, and uh, the measles. And, and so, um, so there is a place for vaccination. Uh, and uh, we generally want those fatal or potentially fatal illnesses to be have some immunity in the community. Um, then we get into those illnesses that I consider non-fatal. And I have a lot of questions about immunizations of those, you know, uh, and so that's where I feel like it comes down to a value system. And should we be declaring someone to be um, uh, un, uncooperative, uh, to be non-compliant? You know, we use that term in the medical community and we say, well, non-compliant is good in a lot of situations, <laughs> but uh, we, 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 we put labels on people uh, unnecessarily because sometimes I really feel like some of these vaccinations, you could look at it and go, mm, I'm not sure that the benefit outweighs the risk. Uh, you know, and something that is likely to kill your child if they get it there's a pretty clear cost benefit ratio or risk benefit ratio. And so um, in those situations, I encourage um, uh, the decision toward immunization. But again, I'm of the position that it is the parents that are responsible to make the decision for that child, not me. So. Well, thank you for addressing that. I'm sure that's very helpful to many, many of the parents who are listening to this, Roger. One more question uh, with your with your MD hat on before we move to some of the other topics I'd like to discuss. We hear a lot about rising levels of childhood anxiety. Is, is this something you're seeing? And how do you think parents should respond to this in, in helping their children either to respond to anxiety and, and rising levels of this or to avoid anxiety? Um, rising levels of any condition is uh, associated with a lot of talk about it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when we have a label for something, we suddenly start, start seeing the diagnosis for all kinds of things. Uh, so, um, 
but anxiety is talked about a lot and i'm not saying that it's not real um we all have had some degree of emotional stress and whether we call it anxiety depression we call it uh attention deficit or you know there's a whole lot of labels that we put on certain behaviors and sometimes those are temporary situations that someone is feeling stress um, uh, but there are things that we we don't do as much of uh in in the past you send your children outside to play unobserved you know and they got into all kinds of things and digging holes and jumping out of trees and and uh uh riding horseback uh you know doing all kinds of things and so some of that activity actually allays emotional tension and the more we're still the more our emotions kind of rise up so hmm. is it is there some association with inactivity and these emotional symptoms i think there is um and so um but our tendency is when we see something that doesn't fit the norm let's say they're more fearful or anxious or whatever term we put on that we want to give a medicine for it. That's the knee-jerk response. And in fact, before 19, it was in, in the late 60s and probably mid-70s that the primary way of treating any kind of mental illness uh, was talk therapy. And only during that time did we start giving pills and medicines for stuff. And uh, so it was, it was a rare thing to, to treat any kind of uh, emotional upset with medicine prior to certainly prior to 1970. And uh, here we are, whereas that is the main way we want to give a prescription. Mm -hmm. And so there, there are ways whenever our child is upset, you know, maybe it's, we can call it anxiety, we can call it depression. But let's hear them out. Let's talk. Let's find a way to communicate through those things. And so most times things don't need medicine most times they need relationship. Don't need medicine, need relationships. That's powerful, Roger. Thank you. I'm looking at your book, Parenting with Influence, and uh, our, our listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm holding it up and it has a picture of a little probably three-year-old on his little tricycle, and then maybe six years old on his scooter, then maybe 10 years old on a bike, and then a late teenager on a dirt bike. And you were talking about kids going out and running around. Now, I will say for our listeners, the, the child is wearing a helmet in all of these pictures. So um, good, good parenting there, good safety there. But tell us why you wrote this book. It's titled Parenting with Influence, Shifting Your Parenting Style as You and Your Child Grow. Tell me why you wrote this book. Well, through the years, I have observed a lot of parent-child interaction in a lot of different situations, some in the office, some not. And um, there, there is an increasing amount of tension between parents and children and struggle that I see rooted in the whole idea of the parent trying to control the child. And um, so control is appropriate in the very early stages. In fact, that's the way that they are trained about what is good and right and wholesome and, and uh, what's an expected norm of behavior and attitude and things like that. But, you know, we, we don't wanna be controlling a 25 year old son we want them to control themselves. And so there has to be this constant shift of control from the parent 
to the child as they mature. And, and so that, so I saw that battle for control as the primary underlying uh, motivation of a lot of the parent-child conflict that I saw, particularly in the teen years. In fact, whenever it gets more scary for the parent, they try to be more controlling and then there's more rebellion. And, uh, and so there's this constant tension that seems to be growing through the teen years. And I said, there's a different way of viewing this. And if we can get ahead of the curve and, and help the child take control and have self-control, let, let's put some language on that. And that was, that was the whole reason for trying to write it in, in, the, in the form that I did is I broke it down by different age periods, you know, to where, what does it look like when they're in elementary school? What does it look like when they're in junior high? What does that look like as they are in, in the teenage years and the emerging adult years? And so um, that's, that was the whole idea is we've got to shift from control in the early years to influence because there, there's no doubt I cannot control my children. It's, in fact, your kids are all adult kids now, right? That, that's right. And, but I realized whenever it, it came to the forefront, whenever my, my most difficult child was about 13 and we, we got into a very small, it was a very small thing. I was trying to get him to practice a speech. <laughs> he had, he had an event the next day and I said, you're going to practice that speech tonight. He said, I am not. And I realized, I, Uh-oh. I, first, I first said, well, I'm not going to bed tonight until you practice that speech. And I realized as soon as I got that out of my mouth that I could not make him practice that speech and he was going to keep me up all night. I went, okay, he's got me in checkmate here. Uh, (laughs) But so it just brought to the, to uh, it crystallized for me, the fact that at some point in time, even 12, 13, 14, we can no longer control them we have to have a different way of relating and the way of relating to them is a relationship that's rooted in influence. And that doesn't happen instantly. It's not the flip of a switch. That's something that we build through the years. And that's what we lay out in the book is how are we shifting from control to influence when they are six? And then what does that look like when they're eight or 10 or 12? And we have to do more shifting earlier than we think. Most people think that happens whenever they are 16, 17, and 18. That's too late, my friend. Mm-hmm. You uh, Chapter 8, uh, I want to zero in on because there was something really interesting, and perhaps it's because uh, my wife and I, we have two boys, they're 10 and 5, so we're right there in the elementary years. But Chapter 8 is called Finding Their Way, Teaching Responsibility in the Elementary Years. And there's a sentence, a couple sentences here that I wanted to read because it was very powerful and very impactful to me. How do we train our children to be irresponsible by not trusting them with real responsibility? No responsibility is irresponsibility. One of the favorite sayings in our house is, if you want children to be responsible, give them responsibility. Can you talk a little bit about that? The um, helping kids in their elementary years to be responsible. I don't want to go into too much detail because I want people to order this book, Parenting with Influence by Roger Smith, MD. But that one's so important. I was like, I've got to ask Roger this about it on the podcast. (laughs) Well, uh, during the elementary years, they're so focused on developing skills, acquiring skills. They want to do what you're doing. They want to do the big people stuff. They're, uh, you know, 
people uh, accuse children of just playing games and stuff like that. But what I find in reality is they want to do real things that shows that they can, they have skills. So we, that time period is critical that we begin to lay hold of that desire to do something bigger than just play a game. Uh, and it's not just taking out the trash. They want to do something that is challenging that they really are not quite able to do. In fact, mm. if we wait until they're totally competent to do a task, they're not really interested in it. It's not a challenge for them. And so uh, I liken it to whenever um, Jan had all the kids in the car and it was she had to stop for fuel. Uh, is that she'd pull up to the gas station and it was kind of like pulling a, a NASCAR pulling into the pit, you know, and everybody would run out. So uh, we would train the oldest child to pump the gas and then he would train the next oldest child to pump the gas, you know. And so each child would have a job whenever Jan pulled in for fuel. One would check the tire pressure. One would clean the windshield. And, you know, and once they got you know, skilled enough, one would check the oil, Jan would stay in her seat, but we, our intention was to train them to do real things. And they saw it as fun. They didn't see it as work. They didn't see it as, you know, us dumping on them. You know, they wanted to do the big, big uh, boy jobs. And so, um, and so that was just a one picture of taking something that's normal and empowering our children to do something. Now, did they get the windshield you know, completely clean, streakless. No, but that wasn't our goal. Our goal was to train them in task responsibility, you know, to be helpful. And so um, it, it looked like Jan was, uh, you know, had a bunch of little servants, but she was training those little people. And so um, sometimes we'll be accused of, you know, trying to get too much out of our children. But really, our goal was to train them. And to other people, it might it might not look right, but they want to do the big people things. And if we train them and give them the freedom, don't expect perfection the first time. But that's the time in those elementary year, years, they want to develop skills and they only get skills by doing stuff. And so finding ways that they can do big people things. So um there's a whole host of them. And I list some of them in the book. There we go. So people need to order that book and, and get it. Yeah. Roger, I want to talk to you about homeschooling. You and Jan have been uh, leaders in the homeschool movement in Louisiana and nationwide for many years. Talk to me a little bit about your family's journey to homeschooling. Before, before we had children, we were introduced to uh, a family and we didn't realize what was going on, but, uh, that family came to serve on the pastor staff of our church here in Louisiana. They came from Oregon. And when they showed up uh, that we were, ha we were teaching, Jan and I were teaching the fifth grade Sunday school class. And uh, we were having a party at our house the day that they arrived. And so they just dropped the children off. There were a couple of children that fit that fifth and sixth grade age group. And uh, these two kids came in they were engaging. They were not afraid of the other people. They knew the scriptures. They were able, you know, just, they were bright. I went, what is going on with these kids? These don't, you know, this is unusual. I, I would have thought they would have been shy or reticent, but come to find out they were home educated. And, uh, and so the, we set up on our, 
our uh, uh, we set ourselves on a journey to learn about it. And we went, this is interesting. And Jan was always bored in school. Uh, and so she said, this, this sounds like something I want to do because I, I don't want my kids to be, have, be, be bored like I was. And so, um, so we began learning about it and met some other families along the way. But then um, the, one of the main reasons that we personally got uh, chose home education is that my, my oldest child was five whenever we uh, uh, began my medical practice. And beginning any career, you're putting in a lot of extra hours. It, my day would start early and end late. And we looked at my schedule. And if they were in a traditional school, I would have never seen them. I would have left before they got up. They would have been gone to bed before I got home. They would have essentially gone days and weeks without seeing me. Hmm. Said that doesn't fit our family. And we're not going to let the school dictate how our family runs. And so we said, we, we have to home educate just so that we have a relationship in the home. Well, we didn't know how much relationship that that would offer. Uh, it was, it, it, it was a game changer for us. And um, uh, we had rich relationships in the home and it gave us time that fit our schedule so that we could read together. We could play games together. We could do all kinds of things, even on my limited uh, very limited schedule. Uh, and so that's how we got involved with, uh, home education and, and the children were growing and flourishing and they were doing great. And we, we took one year at a time and one year added to the next. And before long, they were in high school. And, uh, so, uh, uh, but we didn't really get involved in, well, we got involved in local leadership just because, we were one of the first ones in our home, in our area to home educate. So naturally we were kind of the leader of the local group, so to speak. Um, and the group was quite small. It started with three families. <laughs> so when people think of a co-op, our co-op was three families with a Spanish tutor <laughs> instead of showing up and there's 200 kids running around. Um, so, um, but after our children um, finished high school, uh, I looked at Jan and I, I said, listen, the, the things that the state organization has done that has enriched our lives, we, we owe them a great debt. We need to get involved to help the state organization continue to impact families like it impacted us. And so we got involved at the state Louisiana, uh, uh homeschool organization. It, at the time we used the word chef Christian Home Educators Fellowship of Louisiana. We, we've since changed the name to Homeschool Louisiana. Uh, um, but after serving there for several years, uh, I got involved with the National Alliance of Home Educators. Um, and so now I serve on, on that board to help. It's an organization that helps support the state orgs with tools and resources and ideas and networking and all those kinds of things that are that help us to move organizations forward. Well, you and Jan have been tremendous leaders for homeschool freedom. And actually, I'll be coming down to speak at your Capitol Day in Baton Rouge on May 1st. And that's because of you and Jan and your leadership inviting me to come and speak to the homeschoolers there. So I'm looking forward to that event. And for our podcast listeners in Louisiana, mark your calendars for Monday, May 1st, which will be the Homeschool Lobby Day in Baton Rouge in Louisiana.
and you'll be able to get to meet Roger in person there. Yeah, if it, you haven't it's, already. It's a it's a a great opportunity one for the families to uh, just become familiar with the legislative process to to see to kind of demystify the process. You be on on the Capitol grounds. Uh, the meeting. See is how the sausage is made. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's not mysterious, but we do, I'll I tell you, the most important thing for us is that we want legislators to see what homeschool families look like. And you may not consider yourself an exemplary homeschool family, but for the legislators, they are, they're going to picture someone and we want them to picture a real family, not an imagined family, because oftentimes, because homeschoolers tend to not be the norm, uh, people making decisions about homeschool legislation oftentimes are imagining something that is not true, that they're trying to fix a problem that's not real. And so uh, that's why it's really helpful for the legislators to see families, the children, uh, and uh, that's one of the, the benefits to the organization for, for folks coming to Capitol Day. And so um, we, we will have an opportunity for you to uh, make an appointment, meet your legislator, and they are real people. They're normal people like us. And uh, so, and they need to know what a normal homeschooler looks like. And you might not consider yourself normal, but you are. <laughs> In whatever way you are, you're... <laughs> We and the families to. bring their kids as well. And of course, right. what does a politician like? They like to see kids. That's so right. So it's very, yeah. very effective. That's right. Roger, the last topic I want to talk about is marriage. You and your wife, Jan, we've mentioned Jan a few times. You do a lot of work on marriage. You do marriage seminars around the country. This is something that you both feel very strongly in. So why is this important to you? Well, the home starts with the marriage and it ends with the marriage and children sometimes come into that mix. And so uh, I, I certainly think that uh, we can get off path, uh, yet you know, kind of stray the course if we focus all of our attention on the children that, you know, and, and there's an adage that says the best thing you can do for your children is to love their mother or their spouse you know, if you're the mother, you love the husband, if you're, you know, uh, so if we can keep the marriage healthy, that actually helps to protect the children. And there's no other thing in life that we would consider to happen automatic for us to succeed in. If we're going to become a ball player, we practice, we study, we 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 do drills if, if we're going to become a carpenter we we study uh the all the the tools and techniques and the newest products and you know in cooking you get new recipes and you try out this and you ask advice but somehow we think that marriage should happen automatic that uh, there shouldn't be problems in the marriage or that for the marriage to grow it just would happen automatic but it's not that way. We we have to be. Uh, we have to uh, give it some time, some focus and attention, and that's why we, at homeschool conferences and other events, uh, church events, or like uh, as you mentioned, marriage seminars or conferences, we talk about uh, different aspects of the relationship, things that we can do that will help us to grow together and to stay together, you know, and keep the logs of the fire burning, and uh, you know the. the 
you know, the way to put out a fire is to separate the logs. And uh, if we, we can kind of stay close, uh, and that's one of the benefits to us for home education is that we were doing it as a unit. It wasn't her doing her thing and me doing my thing. Uh, and so we had a lot of things we did together. Uh, but also, um, if you're even if you're not a home educator, uh, the marriage still needs some attention, some work, and that's why we uh, speak on the on those uh, the on those things to give people new ideas, new input, spur them along to uh, uh, to keep the fires of the marriage burning. You know, I'm not just talking about passion. You know, passion is great, uh, and we we like for people to be passionate in their marriage. Uh, and, and yet there's also a lot of respect, kindness, consideration, tending to one another's needs. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do that, that make the marriage move forward. And, um, it's essential for the health of the children, health of the family, and in fact, health of the nation. So the healthier the homes, the healthier the nation. That is something that I think has been forgotten in modern political discourse, and I'm so glad that you hearken back to that, Roger. How can our listeners find out more about your work, about your marriage seminars, about your books? Do you have a place for them to visit? My website is the best place. It is rogersmithmd.com. And so uh, if you remember that I'm a physician, uh, it does require that MD, rogersmithmd.com. Com. And uh, so you can find more about the book. Uh, there are some others coming. We're working on a marriage book right now. And uh, so uh, uh, another thing that we'll be offering there, are, I, I, I say a, a, a very short path to wisdom is to uh, memorize quotes of other people, because usually quotes or poems are lots of ideas and wisdom boiled down into one or two very short sentences. And uh, so uh, we have a quote book coming, coming out soon, too. And so uh, you, you can look for all those resources and find out how to contact us if you have questions or want us to come to one of your events or to plan something. So rogersmithmd.com. Well, my guest today has been Roger Smith, MD. Roger, thank you so much for coming on our podcast, sharing this wisdom and taking the time to talk to our listeners today. It's my pleasure, Will. You have been listening to the Epic Broadcast, the official podcast of the Parental Rights Foundation. You can find this in all our episodes at parentalrightsfoundation.org slash podcast or on iTunes or Spotify. If you enjoyed this episode, please share our podcast with your friends, use the Epic hashtag with two Ps on social media, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others join our community. The Parental Rights Foundation is a donor-supported 501c3 dedicated to protecting children by empowering parents. To support our work, including this podcast, make a gift today at parentalrightsfoundation.org. Thank you for listening.